0: Thank you, Ed, and thank you, men, for, for leading us so well. Take your scriptures and open them to the book of Matthew. We're going to be looking at chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. I don't know if uh, you got the, the chill as we were singing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, that Christmas chill. We usually sing that just once a year. I think it's a shame. They're such beautiful songs and they have such deep theology. And I hope, as, as, as we do here at this church, I hope we, you, you are paying attention to the themes of the scripture reading, of the hymns we sing. We try to have an integrated service here with what the sermon, the main point of the sermon is. And we're going to be looking at Matthew, these verses in Matthew, and looking at at Christ and who Christ is, his deity. And so I hope you pick up on that. Uh, Please pray with me. Father God, I thank you for your word. It is so rich. So the depth of it is amazing. And we we come to a, a text today that is well known. So I pray that you will keep us alert. It is also so deep. That, that I couldn't possibly cover all you have for us here. But we do ask you, Spirit, to take this little morsel, this little piece of the cake that you have served up for us this morning and feed us well by it. Help us to imbibe it, to chew on it, and for it to strengthen our body. Change us, Holy Spirit, in this time, through your word. Jesus name. Amen. Amen. There's a painting in the palace in Rome, a 17th century baroque painter by the name of Guido Reni. He painted a painting on the ceiling of a dome that was about 100 feet high, and standing at floor level when you look up, you can't really make out what the painting is. It's hard from that height and the perspective you have. And so what they've done is they've placed a huge mirror in the center of the floor, which reflects and picks up the painting. And so to, to actually see the painting, to actually comprehend the painting, you have to look at this mirror and that reflection, the reflection of the painting, you can begin to comprehend. You can begin to piece together. You can actually see what Rennie painted there. But only through the mirror. First Timothy 1.17 says this, Now the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, The honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What a wonderful benediction uh, Timothy stops and gives before launching into his, his book. But what he's saying there is God is eternal, he's immortal, and he's invisible. God cannot be seen. If those of you who grew up with catechism, you know this. That's one of the catechism questions. God cannot be seen. Trying to see God is like looking up at Rennie's painting at the dome. You can't piece it together. But God has given us a mirror. A mirror through which we can begin to see God for who He really is. And that mirror is Christ. He reflects God perfectly. Why? Why does He reflect God perfectly? Because He is God. And I think that's the morsel, that's the piece of this cake that I think God has for us this morning. Jesus reveals himself as God. Look with me at chapter 14 in Matthew, starting in verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go to the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves and two fishes. And he said, Bring them to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. We've been making our way through the book of Matthew these past months. But ever since, if you noticed, ever since chapter 11, when he denounced the cities of Bethsaida and Chorazin and Capernaum, his, his ministry has begun to change since chapter 11. He becomes increasingly critical, if you can, if if you've noticed that, increasingly critical to the Pharisees and Sadducees. He's been challenging them in chapter 12. We'll see that again in chapter 15 and 16. He's really beginning to push back against the Pharisees. He also becomes increasingly detailed about his kingdom. That, of course, is shown most evidently in the chapter we just looked at, chapter 13, where he is really starting to describe this coming kingdom, this kingdom that he is ushering in, this upside-down kingdom. But he's also starting to become much more explicit about who he is. Much more explicit about who he is. God incarnate. This, of course, is going to come to a pinnacle in chapter 16, end of 16 and beginning of 17, when Peter has that great confession of who he really is, the Christ. And then immediately afterwards, he has he transfigures himself on the mount. That's, that's going to be coming, and that's where we're, the trajectory that Jesus is headed on. leading up to that, Jesus' healing ministry, if you notice, is beginning to ramp up, fulfilling a major messianic sign. In the very next section of scripture, which we'll look at next week, he walks on water, recalling the parting of the Red Seas. And here, he feeds the 5,000. Perhaps there's no miracle that really... that that really is more explicit about who Jesus is than the feeding of the 5,000. In fact, the Holy Spirit deemed this miracle so critical that it's, it's the only miracle besides the resurrection. It's the only miracle that is in all four Gospels. Because it reflects His divinity so clearly. And I want us to look at that in three ways that this miracle reflects who God is. God incarnate. And the first way is, is that Jesus is revealed as the God of all compassion. The God of all compassion. Jesus has withdrawn in a boat to be by himself, and the crowds follow him. The Sea of Galilee is at the bottom of this bowl, if you will, of mountains. And so, you know, we look, read this and go, how did they know where he was going? Well, actually, the Sea of Galilee, if you've been there, is not not excessively large. You can see from one end to the other. And and you can watch a boat and where it goes. And apparently, these people who knew about Jesus' healing power and his ministry, they saw him going and they followed him around. And when he got to this desolate place, they started showing up. First scores, then hundreds, and then thousands. Thousands. Verse 14 says, when he saw the crowds coming, he got out of the boat and he had compassion on them. Could you imagine seeing thousands of people hobbling, being carried, being helped along? All these people that needed healing. His heart broke towards them. He showed unbounded compassion by healing those people for hours and hours and hours. And try to put this into context. He gets there, these people come, and he just begins healing for hour after hour until nightfall. That kind of heart, that kind of compassion, that kind of breaking towards people is really a definitive characteristic of Jesus in his ministry. And Matthew holds that up for us again and again. In Matthew 8, he has compassion on a demon-possessed man, if you remember. In chapter 9, his heart breaks and he has compassion on the people. He looks out at the people and he sees them as harassed and harried like uh, sheep without a shepherd. A little later on in this same chapter, if you you can look across the page, his heart is going to break with compassion towards another group of people that he needs to feed, 4,000. And later on in Matthew, we see he has has compassion on two blind men. And when he's coming into Jerusalem for the final time, you remember this? He looks out over Jerusalem, and his heart breaks, and he has compassion for Jerusalem, for the people of Jerusalem. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I I would love to have you come under my wing as a chick... Chicks, come under a mother hen's wing, but you would not have me. You can hear the lament, but the compassion for his people there. Jesus' heart breaks over the brokenness of his people. That's the heart of God. That's God's heart. In Second Corinthians chapter 1, God's word describes God the Father as the Father of all compassion. And the God of all comfort. He's the Father of all compassion. That's who God is. We tend to read the Old Testament and read God in the Old Testament as wrath and judgment, don't we? It's kind of how we have been almost taught to read the Old Testament. Wrath and judgment, God. Grace and mercy, Jesus. And sure, that. For sure, God is a God of wrath and justice. I mean, somebody just prayed here and and praised God for those attributes. They are part of who God is. He takes his justice. He takes obedience seriously. But every time there's judgment, every time there's judgment, we see an even greater mercy. And we need to be able to put on that lens and understand that. If you remember the refrain that, that is taken throughout the Old Testament, it said eight different times. The Lord our God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. It says it over and over and over again, that same refrain. Why? I think that, that God wants us to, to kind of put on a different lens when we read the Old Testament. He wants us to see that he is a God of compact, not only of wrath and judgment, but of compassion and mercy. And if we slow down, and if we change lenses, I think we begin to see that. Let me take the fall, for example. Yes, he cast them out of the garden. Yes, he fulfilled his promise that if they disobeyed, death would ensue. Yes, there's the judgment. But do you see the mercy? If you go back and read chapter 3 and 4 of Genesis, you begin to see that that he, when he cast them out, he clothed their nakedness. He cared for them. You begin to see that, that when, he, when he was even in his judgment in, in chapter 3, he was giving them the promise of the Redeemer right there, the snake crusher. Don't worry, I'm not leaving you out there in the cold. I'm coming for you. And even even in casting them out of the garden, he he was taking them away from the tree of life so they wouldn't eat that and remain unredeemed for all eternity. You've got to put on different lenses when you look at God. Think of the wilderness. The wilderness itself was a 40-year judgment, wasn't it? They got right up to the edge of the promised land and they didn't trust God that He could take them in and give them that land. So the judgment was wander for 40 years. But even in that wandering, think of all the care and compassion. The water still gushed from the rock. He caused Balaam to bless and not curse. He sustained them for 40 years on a daily basis by having manna show up in the morning. Even in the exile. That was a judgment. But think of the compassion revealed in his patience. For 490 years, he was patient with them. For 490 years, they drifted. They built idols to other gods. They forgot their god altogether. Yet he preserved them. He cared for them. He protected them. He prospered them in exile. He even brought them back. He had amazing compassion on a shallow, self-centered people who rejected him. A shallow, self-centered people who rejected him. And he brought them back from exile. And isn't that what Jesus exactly does with you and me? He brings us back from exile. I can only speak for myself. I'm not going to speak for you. But I'll speak for myself. I am a shallow, self-centered person who rejected Jesus for years. Who built idols to other gods. Yet while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. Think of that compassion. Isn't it the greatest compassion Jesus shows? While we were yet sinners, while we were still shallow, self-centered, God-rejectors, He still came for you and died. Jesus' compassion it is so great, it drives Him to that. It drives Him to, to come from heaven and, and become a human being. God Himself incarnating. It causes him to struggle to obey the law that he created. Jesus obeyed the law in every way, and that wasn't easy. And he died a substitutionary death. He went to the cross. And that's where that great transaction happened. He taking on our sin and paying the penalty. For our sin and dying. And he taking his perfect righteousness and putting it in our account so that we can come before God. Justified. He went through all that to bring back sinners like you and me. Back from exile. What a great compassionate God we have in Jesus. As we gaze into the mirror again, we see more clearly that Secondly, Jesus is revealed as the god of the impossible. Jesus is revealed as the god of the impossible. This actually is the the heart of this miracle. Jesus has been healing for hours and evening comes and his disciples come to him. We learn in John and say, "What are we going to do?" And they want to send the people away. But look what Jesus says in verse 16. He says, they don't need to go away. Give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. Why do you think he just didn't say, bring me the bread? Now, this is the power of, of observation in your Bible study. Why didn't he just say, uh, Andrew, you have, you have some food there. Here, bring that to me. Why do you think he said, you feed them? I think he did that intentionally. I think he wants to highlight to them the sheer impossibility of what he's going to do. He wants them to really feel the weight of that. He doesn't just want them to be observers. He wants them to feel the weight of that. Our text says there were 5,000 men. Most commentators say there were between twenty and 25,000 people there, including women and children that's somewhere in the vicinity, just to kind of get our minds around this, Some we're in the vicinity of the population of MDI and Ellsworth combined. Just have them in one area. You feed them. Here's five loaves and two fish. The disciples react as we all would. That's impossible. That's, how can we do that? That's where Christ wants them to come to. I love what John MacArthur says here. He says, They were like a man standing before Niagara Falls asking where they can find a drink of water. Standing before God incarnate. So with that impossible situation set, he reveals Niagara Falls. And I want you to see the similarities or the portrait that Jesus is painting here side by side on how God fed His people in the wilderness. We see in the wilderness, the Israelites were hungry in the desert. And here, this multitude, this impossible multitude, is hungry in a desolate place. Yahweh refused to send His people back to, to Egypt. Jesus refuses to send the people to the local towns. God in the wilderness grouped the tribes around him in the center. If you if you know how God traveled in the wilderness with God in the middle and three tribes on each side, east, northeast, south, and west. And here, both in Mark and Luke, they tell us that they sat in groups of 50 around Jesus. God gave manna to his hungry people. On a daily basis, and they baked them into these cakes, and they were satisfied each and every day. And here, Jesus broke the bread and gave it to them, and it multiplied. And they were all fed, and they were satisfied on that day. Jesus wanted to make the connection so explicit in their minds that they begin to get it. As a matter of fact, in John's Gospel, he makes the connection so explicit, he says this to his disciples. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread who came down from heaven. I am the bread of life. If you know the bread of life discourse. What an amazing mirror. Jesus is the God of the impossible. And we forget that all the time, don't we, brothers and sisters? He paints this picture for us. We read it over and over again in the Old Testament. We see it in Jesus and we forget that he's the God of the impossible. We bump up against a a part of our life where we think it's hopeless and helpless Charles Kettering, the head of research for General Motors from 1920 to 1947, wrote: When I was research head of General Motors, I wanted the problem and I wanted a problem solved. I'd place a table outside the meeting room with a sign saying "Leave slide rules here." He said if I didn't do that, I'd find someone reaching for his slide rule and then be on his feet in a few minutes, saying, "Boss, we can't do that." I think we reach for our slide rules all the time, don't we? You can't do that. You can't do that. My marriage is beyond repair. Can't do that. My relationship with my parents is beyond repair. I can't do that. My relationship with my with my friends is gone. Can't be repaired. A dream seems too far gone to be realized. A life rut you feel you will never ever ever get out of. A decision you believe can never be redeemed. A past that continues to cripple you into your 40s and 50s and 60s and you think it's impossible. Perhaps you're in a church right now, if you're visiting. You're in a church right now that you think, you know, I can never see this church being vibrant again. You have to remember that God is the God of the impossible. What is impossible with men is possible with God. Perhaps you're thinking of a family member or a friend who just seems beyond God's reach for salvation how could god ever ever transform that person i'd like to consider a hard drinking hard swearing ex baseball player becoming a gospel powerful gospel preacher billy sunday I'd like you to consider a dyed-in-the-wool lying politician transformed into one of Christianity's most powerful advocates, Charles Coulson. I'd like you to consider a pantheistic, agnostic college professor transformed into one of the 20th century's greatest Christian apologists, C.S. Lewis. I'd like you to consider an anti-God, anti-church, lesbian college professor transformed into a powerful voice for Christ and a pastor's wife, Rosaria Butterfield. And I could go on and on and on. Jesus is the God of the impossible. Wherever you are, wherever, whatever you're going through, He wants you to know that. So throw away your slide rule. Like us to finally look into the mirror of this miracle and see, thirdly, that Jesus is the God of abundant life. He's the God of abundant life. In verse 21, we read, "They ate and were all satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces left over. All the people were satisfied, and they collected up the leftovers, and there are 12 laundry baskets full of bread from these five loaves. They're no bigger than that one. Like when he changed water into wine at that little wedding feast, lulu wedding ceremony in, in John chapter 2. Jesus not only provides, but he provides abundantly. He's showing himself to be like God here. Abundantly generous towards his people just as a parent loves to be generous almost to a fault right to your kids he's like that and more and here but here we have to be careful whenever god shows his abundance and his generosity in a physical way we have a tendency to really warp that our 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 sinful nature has a tendency to take that and just twist it a little bit. What is this abundance meant to show us here? Why why, why is this detail here? Well, some misconstrue this detail, this abundance, as power. That's what the masses did when he fed the 5,000. I went to a church years years ago where a pastor made all the successful people elders in the church. Have you ever gone to a church like that? All the successful people become elders. He figured they were successful, thus he gave them positions to match their abundance. And that is how the crowd understood Jesus' abundance here. If you read John's parallel account you read that they wanted to make him king. They saw this power, this abundance, and they said, he's the guy. Let's let's put him in a position of power. And he can take care of the Romans and take care of us. They saw the miracle as a display of power, which it was. But the crowd saw it as an opportunity to place him in power. Abundance meaning power. That's that's twisted. Others misconstrue abundance as spiritual blessing. We see this all the time. On the retreat, Aaron Hansen took us through a devotion in Mark ten, and and there's that famous verse, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. And, you know, somebody popped up their hand and said, Uh, why do the disciples after that ask the question, then who can be saved? Why do they, what's the correlation there? Why did they assume if a rich man can't be saved, then I guess nobody can if a rich man can't be saved? It's because they, like us, often misinterpret material blessing for spiritual blessing. Ah, the rich man must be In God's favor. And if he can't be in God's favor, who can? They thought physical blessing equals spiritual blessing. Physical blessing equals salvation. That's the, that's the ethic on its, uh, turned on its head that Job's comforters are constantly telling Job, isn't it? They tell him over and over, since Job, you lost everything, you must have done something wrong. It's making that correlation, but in reverse. Physical loss, spiritual loss. It's the ethic of the health-wealth preaching, isn't it? If you're good, God will bless you. If you're obedient, God will be abundant. That's actually catchy. I didn't notice that. I imagine they've said that. And that's just such an oversimplification of Scripture, isn't it? Our lives are so much more spiritually complex than to distill it down to that simplistic formula. In fact, that's one of the major points of the book of Job. Suffering is much more complex than we'd like to believe. And some of those complexities and intricacies are reflected here. This miracle shows Jesus' power and ability to bless for sure, but it's much more complex it ultimately is to teach us to have the right goal in life. To have the right goal in life. Did anyone here read Krakauer's book, Into Thin Air? Years ago it came out. It was, tells the story of the 1996 expedition to the summit of Mount Everest. And he mentions an, a woman by the name of Yusako Namba. Namba was a 46-year-old Japanese woman who had, had scaled seven of the highest peaks on Earth at the time and she wanted to conquer the highest one. She's a FedEx employee with a passion for climbing. This, her goal was to climb Mount Everest. So much so that Krakauer, who was also a member of that expedition, tells how Yusuko was totally focused on the top singularly focused on the top he describes it as she was almost in a trance going up the mountain he said she pushed extremely hard and she always jostled her way to the front so she could crest it first later that day when they were making the the hike to the top she made it she accomplished her goal she got to the top of mount everest She was the oldest person ever to make it to the highest place on earth. However, as we all know, Yusako and a number of other climbers were caught in a terrible blizzard just as they started down slope. And she succumbed to exhaustion and froze to death. She died agonizingly close in time and location to where she gained her greatest prize and this helps explain her tragic mistake according to Krakauer Yusako's fatal flaw was she adopted the wrong goal Yosako's goal had been to get to the top of the mountain what every mountain climber wants she wanted to t- stand at the top of the world and for Japan to cheer her but that was the wrong goal The goal of climbing should never be to get to the top of the summit, he writes. Successful climbers know the goal is not to get to the top, but to get to the top and get back down to the bottom. The tragedy is that Yusaka accomplished her goal, but it was the wrong goal. See, many people have the wrong goals in life. They have the wrong goal in life. Their goal is to have power and prominence and prestige here in this life. To make it to the top in this life. That's the goal, right? That's what the world tells us. To make it to the top of the mountain here, physically, in this life. And that's not the right goal at all, Jesus says. Jesus said in John 10.10, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. The goal is not to make it to the top of the mountain in this life, but in the next life. And that's what Jesus provides in himself. The ability to get to the top of the mountain in the next life. John Piper wrote, The point of making bread, as it were, out of nothing, like God making manna, is that the Son of God has come into the world not to give you bread, but to be your bread. When He gives His flesh on the cross, He becomes bread, all nourishing, all satisfying bread for sinners who believe. So, today, if you're a sinner who believes that they are in desperate need of forgiveness, this table is is for you. If you're here today and you believe that you cannot make it to the next life without Jesus Christ, this table is for you. If you're here today and you believe that all the, th- the good things that you do and you might do many good things cannot help you bridge into the next life, then this table is is for you. If you're here today and you believe that without Jesus Christ, you will freeze to death, this table is for you. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the provision of you. I thank you for coming and living the perfect life that we cannot and dying the substitutionary death that we need, and rising again on the third day, so that we can be with you in paradise. We thank you, Lord, that you give us this table that not only reminds us of our need and of what you have supplied, but also nourishes us. You tell us in John 10 to feed on me. Lord, today we feed on you. In Jesus' name, amen.